had an interesting patient last week who came to see me because he was having a lot of symptoms that were making him feel uncomfortable. You know, he was always bloated. He was overweight. He was having a lot of digestive issues. He was sweating all the time. He had a lot of skin issues. When I'm doing his health history, we're going through and I get to the section where I'm asking about his social history. Are you smoking? No. Are you drinking? A little bit. Oh yeah? How much are you drinking? And he started to tell me, you know, he drinks in the morning, he drinks at lunch, he drinks in the evening. He's a, a high-functioning alcoholic, essentially. And then I went into <clears throat> it with him. I was talking about some of the hormonal changes that chronic consumption of alcohol, the effect that that can have on the body. What have you seen with that with your patients? Well, first thing with patients, when you, know, when you ask that question, do you drink? Uh, yeah, doc, a little bit. Well, it's kind of a wide margin there. One person's mild to moderate, maybe another person severe, right? So um, you got to elaborate on that sometimes. Some people will say, no, I don't drink at all, Doc, uh, you know, which may be a glass of wine a day or maybe a beer or two. To them, that's not drinking. So you have to kind of um, get that out of them sometimes, exactly what that little bit is, right? Because a lot of times we don't always correlate some of the more simple symptoms with um, alcohol use. You know, I know I found that with myself. I quit drinking approximately a year and a half ago after what I considered to be mild drinking for a quite a number of years. And I started to realize that a lot of things were improving that I didn't think were directly related to alcohol. And I said one day, hey, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a list of that stuff. Because it just kept popping up. Wait a minute, I haven't had that problem. I haven't had this symptom, you know, in you know, 12 months. Well, that's about the time that I quit drinking alcohol. I just simply didn't put those things together. So I said, let me grab a sheet of paper and think about this and write it down. And I came up with a list that encompassed quite a bit more than I thought. What did you initially. see? Well, one problem that I had a year and a half worth of what they call dry eye. It might have even been longer than that. And I think it's kind of an oxymoron because basically my eyes watered all the time. And it wasn't uncommon for me, you know, to dab a tissue over my eye maybe every couple minutes or so. And I really didn't correlate that with drinking until I realized that when I stopped drinking, my dry eye or my watering eyes, if you will, gone. Another one was an ex eczema issue that I Hold had. Hold on. How long did that take to go away once you stopped? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't really correlate the two. So it could have been a couple of weeks. It could have been a month. It was just one of those things where I just realized, hey, wait a minute. I'm not doing that anymore. It bothered me a lot the last year or so because I was treating it all the time. I even went to so-called professional help, if you will, um, to get a professional opinion on that. And they even gave me this treatment protocol that was rather expensive, to be honest with you. They said it was correlated just for that. And um, it didn't help. So I was frustrated with that. Again, they call it dry eye. And of course, they explained to me that, you know, the glands in the eyes and blah, 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 blah. But once I stopped drinking, it completely dis disappeared almost. Instantly, I say instantly because I didn't pick it up initially, right? The other thing, too, I had an eczema issue with my skin that I didn't correlate with that. So what you said, you, you had a treatment protocol that you did? What Was that supplements or what was that? Uh, no, it was a rather expensive 
procedure where they actually, I don't remember the exact term of it, they hooked me up with this device that was designed to blow air into the orbit of my eye while this vacuum type of mild suction was supposed to help open up the glands or something like that. That was supposed to help the dry eye, but the actual cause of the dry eye was alcohol intake. Well, I correlate the two. I'm not going to say that was the actual cause because we don't know. The etiology behind that are the cause of why? A couple of things. You, you know, um, we're not really sure. It's could just, be, it could be different for everybody, well, right? That's right. I mean, this is what happened. I, this is what I noticed. Okay. The other one was a skin-related issues. I had a form of eczema that had popped up on my leg that I didn't know where it came from. And um, I even went to a dermatologist buddy of mine, and I said, hey, look look at this. What's up? And I even asked him, I said, hey, doc, could this be associated maybe with alcohol consumption? And uh, he said, you know, we're buddies. He said, Joey, he said, you know, it's skin. We really don't know. <laughs> of course, I couldn't accept that, so I said, okay, well, come on. Now, this is, you know, this is what you do. I went and picked up my Merck manual, which is sort of the Bible for, you know, just about any medical diagnosis and I looked it up and I found my eczema and I looked up and I said under the etiology and it said unknown. I'm like, well, what? So that was a little frustrating. That cleared up within the first 21 days after I stopped drinking. Boom, gone. So my correlation was, yes, that was related. Think about it though. What is, you know, the liver, it's a filter, right? So if it's stressed and it's um, um, straining, if you will, It's got to get rid of those toxins somewhere, and the skin is the most likely place. That's sort of the same thing. The acne works along the same lines, right? So if it's busy clearing out alcohol, then it doesn't really have the time or the capacity to clear out the other toxins in the body. Obviously, it was stressed. So so then the skin steps up and kind of picks up what the liver can't do. Yeah, well, somewhere. You know, the elimination (laughs) system somehow, you know, if you think about it, we talk about the fact the immune system is encompassed of the whole body. So, yeah, uh, it's got to get out somewhere. So you would say that the skin could be kind of like a secondary form of detox for the body. That's why we sweat. So the liver being the primary detox organ, and a lot of people don't realize that the skin is an organ, and I would consider that a secondary detox organ. And that's why a lot of times when a patient comes to me for functional medicine and they have skin-related issues, whether that be eczema or hives or something along those lines, my first thought is to look at the liver, see what's going on there. Well, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about that 21-day cleanse. I crossed the board here again. That 21-day cleanse will get rid of so many symptoms that allow us to actually kind of peel back the layers of onion just with 21 days. A lot of skin-related issues will clear themselves up because a lot of them are associated with either allergic reactions to something like gluten or alcohol or some other allergy that we're consuming, right? So a lot of that, like it did with me, 21 days, and literally it disappeared. Yeah, so, something that's affecting the function of the liver, no matter what that is, can show up in the skin. The liver or some other part of the body's detox system, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Standard Process. Standard Process recognizes the negative impact that the standard American diet has on our overall health. They believe that processed foods deplete our food sources of the rich nutrition once found in them. Standard Process understands that good health comes from good nutrition and the best nutrition comes from whole foods. They dedicate their time to perfecting the production of whole food-based supplements from the soil used to grow crops to the manufacturing processes used to create the supplement. 
They have always focused on putting vitality into every bottle, and that's why we recommend Standard Process 21-Day Purification Program to our patients. If your body could use a reset, order your program today at us.fullscript.com slash welcome slash podcast. And that's also a good point, Joey, is that the liver is a detox organ. So think about what alcohol actually is. If the consumption of alcohol can affect your liver's ability to detox, then that means that alcohol is a toxin, right? So I've always wondered, all the, quote, studies out there that say that alcohol in certain quantities can improve your health, whether that be a glass of red wine or they say maybe a beer a day or whatever it may be, saying that, yeah, yeah, drink some alcohol to improve your health, to extend your life. I've always called BS on that because explain to me how consuming a toxin can extend your life. I don't buy it. Well, you know, here again, you might consider yourself mild consumption, which I consider myself mild consumption, but obviously it wasn't, right? I will agree with a couple of things. I think one of the, the key aging protocols for us and one of our health-related issues are stress from the adrenal glands, cortisol from the, our lifestyles of stress. They say that maybe a glass of wine or maybe one alcoholic drink a day tends to take the edge off. That might help people who have a problem with a lot of anxiety or stress. Now, would going to the gym perhaps do the same thing or some other form of exercise? Yes, but here I can see the correlation with there. Red wine and restro, what is it called? Resveratrol, yeah, ve- ve- phytosterols, antioxidants. Bingo, I understand right? all that, but yeah. there are a lot of other juices you could drink that would well, have maybe a better effect without the toxin. Well, now, you know, that's, that's a fact. Some people like the effect that they might get occasionally whether it's just to take the edge off or whatever. So, and, you know, we all know people who lived in 90, 95 with a glass of vodka and a cigar, right? So, I mean, uh, I think um, it's not a cookie-cutter set um, protocol for everybody. But um, I mean, trust me, I, I understand the appeal. You know, I, uh, I've, I've certainly enjoyed my alcohol for a, for a lot of years and uh, nothing against it, but I just don't want – people to believe that it's a health cocktail like some studies might have you believe and here's the thing here's the thing joey there's a study out there to support anything you want to believe and that's why when people say things like trust the science follow the science i have to think you know well why are there studies that exactly conflict each other you know there can be a study that says this and there's also a study that says the exact opposite so when someone says that they trust the science i i I err on the side of caution when it comes to that because science can be easily manipulated to say whatever you want it to say or whatever the person that paid for that study wants it to say. Let's say maybe my difficulty might be trusting the scientist because that which truly is science is science. But yeah, a lot of times they're after an outcome before they even get started. That's why uh, a company can pay for a study to be done or pay uh, a lab to complete a set of studies. And if eight studies report a negative result, they'll pick the two studies that stated a positive result and just completely discard the eight studies that opposed their projected viewpoint. And that's how it can be manipulated. It's called cherry picking data. Happens every day with pharmaceutical companies. It's something that we need to be aware of. Well, you know, 
uh, I think it was far back as 40, 50 years ago, a lot of your research was done by nonprofit companies, right, that didn't have a dog in the hunt, so to say. Well, now a lot of your pharmaceutical-related type studies are being done through medical schools, which are funded by that particular pharmaceutical. So the outcome will eventually come out in the favor of those who are funding it. And it's sad, but that's, that's, that's reality today. If somebody proved me wrong on that one, I'd be more than happy to hear otherwise. But getting back to the alcohol, though, I noticed like some things that um, might be considered rather odd. You know, we talked about the eczema, and, and that cleared up. I also... You know, I, I like to train often during the week, and my recovery time was just slowing down. And that's one of the other things I noticed shortly after I had quit drinking alcohol within a matter of a month or two. My recovery time was so much better. My muscle soreness was just almost gone. Hair, my hair, <laughs> hair improved. I mean, this is another thing that became a lot less brittle. And these are things that probably during the time of consumption I wasn't really paying attention to so much. It was really wild, and that's why I said, hey, I gotta, I'm going to write this stuff down. I'm going to sit down and make a list of these things. I batted with vertigo for two years prior to stopping alcohol. Really? Yes, you know, something that I treat very successfully here with the upper cervical and inner ear. But that's not always the cause. And in my case, apparently... That had the etiology there to some degree was the alcohol consumption because I haven't had a problem with that in the 18 months that I've quit drinking. So once you cut it out, the vertigo went away? Vertigo gone. Vertigo. And I developed that probably two or three years ago. I remember that I woke up one morning, the Monday after Christmas. Christmas was on that Sunday because I was going to work. I woke up and, you know, wintertime is dark. So I stand up, I'm out of bed. And it was like somebody just pushed me right back onto the bed. Boom. Like, no, you're not getting up yet. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And that was my first bout with vertigo. And it's not fun. And for those people who have very bad cases and, you know, they have to be driven here because they can't even drive a vehicle, I feel for them. This is another one of those things which just suddenly I haven't had it in 18 months now. So I have to correlate that. Uh, well, that's, that's huge. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Another huge thing, acid reflux. If I went out and had either a tequila or a whiskey, forget about it. I mean, especially if I ate some chicken wings, which those things just seem to go together so well. Before I could even get home, I would be battling acid reflux. Yeah, I remember you used to burp a lot. I don't notice that anymore. That was my go-to. You know, some people get the acid <clears throat> reflux issues. I got the hiccups really bad. I mean, debilitating. And um, I haven't had a case of those. Uh, since I stopped, and that's 18 months ago then, you know, and here again, I didn't have this five years ago, so I think it was the accumulation of time. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's hard to correlate those things because let's just say somebody says, well, I've been drinking for 20 years, and I just started getting this acid reflux problem. Now, well, yeah, I mean, that's how long the toxicity can take. And that's the other thing with acid reflux. We talked about the fact that that's not too acidic a stomach. It's too alkaline, and what you want to alkaline your stomach real keep consuming alcohol over a period of time, you're going to be extremely alkaline. And um, amazing how that, what do we got there? Half a dozen symptoms that could be treated by all kinds of medications, if you would, just by stopping a issue that not directly correlated with from most people with consumption of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. it is a societal, social thing. It yeah. is so common. Yeah. You know, it's something that we enjoy doing together. It loosens you up. If you have social anxiety, it gets you feeling a little more loose. And sometimes you can think you're a little funnier than you are. And then I've, I've, yeah. been, I've been there. But I'll tell you, you know, I, I hardly drink anymore either. And what it used to do to me that I noticed was more 
had to do with neurological symptoms, brain fog. Oh, big time. Big time. You know, I made it through college and I made it through chiropractic school with what I would consider now kind of a suppressed memory, suppressed ability to think as clearly as I can now. Yeah, hangover. And it wasn't really an all-day hangover because even in school, I was really only drinking on weekends, but that would affect me all throughout the week. It would be something that stuck with me, not just when I felt hungover. It was something that would linger in my brain for days to come. And it was anxiety. I wouldn't call it full on depression, but it was definitely affecting my mood in a negative way. And I see looking back now how it affected relationships that I was in. And pretty much the only time that we would butt heads were when we were drunk or drinking. If I remove alcohol from the equation for a lot of the relationships I look back on in my life, they would have gone a lot more smoothly. Like mine is now. Katie and I really almost never drink, and especially now while she's pregnant, <laughs> we get along so well. And I, I have to think that that's, that is a component because I think that if I'm drinking enough, I can find something to, to be unhappy about. Well, an interesting thing there is that talking about the COVID lockdown and the amount of serotonin reuptake inhibitors that were being prescribed like 3,000 fold. So you had all this depression associated with that. And where did a lot of people turn to? Well, I think alcohol consumption went up like 500% in that first year, right? So we're taking something because we're depressed that is actually causing even greater depression when those receptor sites aren't filled. And like you were talking about the anxiety, this is a thing about alcohol. It fills anxiety receptor sites a lot like a Xanax does along the exact same line. So you go to a weekend with your college buddies, for example, and you consume quite a bit, and then you go to get on that plane on Sunday afternoon, and you say, you know what, I'm gonna cut off that alcohol now, and then you, and those receptor sites have been filled with the alcohol Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. And you go to get on that plane now, and those receptor sites are starting to empty out, and I used to have a problem with anxiety and panic getting on the airplane because of the fact that those receptor sites are no longer filled, and the same thing could happen Monday morning. Our, Sunday night trying to sleep. That was another issue. That's what Dr. Andrew Huberman says about dopamine, how we're, as a country, we're addicted to dopamine and how alcohol gives you a big release of dopamine, of course. But once you uh, stop that intake, you know, the next morning, that's the hangover because you're in such a dopamine deficit. So not only are you down to baseline, you're below baseline. You're in a dopamine deficit. Yes. So even just to get back to baseline, that's why hair of the dog works. You know, you get a couple yeah. more drinks in the next morning and you don't feel as hungover. But that's what I would feel long term is that I was in a dopamine deficit because I was drinking on the weekend. So throughout the next week, I just didn't quite feel back to normal. And for me, I noticed it was the same thing. It was usually about Wednesday, maybe a couple workouts at the gym to actually get the weekend off of you and clear it out of your head, right? Exactly. And then maybe back, and then along came Friday again. Okay, <laughs> the golf course, and you know, so what a cycle. But it's interesting as you were talking about that, and as I was stopping my alcohol, a lot of my close friends would say, "Well, Joey, how's your sleep?" It's a, it's funny, and even patients would ask me, "How's your sleep?" Like that was that one little thing they wanted to know about, and it's true. Because I sleep so much better, one of the reasons is I don't have that blood sugar waking me up at uh, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning because I get the blood sugar low from the alcohol before you go to bed, right? Well, tell us how alcohol affects blood sugar. Well, again, if you think about it, it's a form of sugar, right? It uh, isn't that much different than if it was a glass of orange juice or Coke, right? It elevates blood sugar. So when you consume that alcohol and you go to bed, the 
um, blood sugar that you spiked, you know, during the day, or certainly a lot of times we tend to consume a couple of drinks before we go to bed. Well, it spikes that up, and then when the blood when the blood sugar drops, you get a crash. You get a crash, and then your adrenals are going to wake you up because it's going to release cortisol due to a lowering of the blood pressure, and boom, now you're awake. And the problem there is a lot of people will just make it worse by staring at the clock, staring at the clock instead of uh, neutralizing that blood sugar with a protein. That's why I tell my patients either, look, get you a protein bar or even a boiled egg, get up and go eat that because you're not going to go back to sleep. It just gets worse the longer you stare at the clock, right? So another one of those 12 or 13 things that I wrote down, I think you mentioned also too, um, irritability. Remember how you said how irritable you would be? Yeah, that's another side effect that we don't realize that we're actually trying to take the edge off, if you will. But I found myself a lot more irritable. And I that sort of, as you were speaking about earlier, just definitely cut way back on my irritability. Yeah, so drinking more for irritability is really perpetuating the problem in the long term. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about the intake of protein at the end of the night, kind of helping to offset that blood sugar drop. I eventually developed kind of like a hack for uh, after I'd gone out for a night of drinking. If I remembered before bed, I would do it then, but usually it would end up being the next morning I would make. I had a special hangover smoothie, and I'll share that recipe in the show notes. What I would do is I would get four stalks of celery, one cucumber, piece of ginger to kind of help with that stomach ache, mm-hmm. uh, half a lemon juiced. I would do three cups of chopped spinach, Then I would put two green apples all in a blender, and I would put two scoops of protein. Protein now? What kind of protein, Doc? Uh, I don't think I knew about it then, but what I use now is Veggie Complete Protein. I use vanilla, and it tastes really good with all that. But Veggie Complete is a standard processed protein that's just a higher quality. It doesn't have any lactose or it doesn't have any whey, so it's not going to give you that bloated, gassy feeling. Yes. But I blend all that together. The Vitamix is going to make it nice and smooth, but really any blender will do. And, you know, sometimes I still drink this as just my lunch. I just feel so much better. I've got good energy, no brain fog. I feel more energetic when I drink this smoothie, and I'll often just drink it for lunch. You feel better, right? The energy's there, okay? Is it coincidental or no, it's not. It's actually what you put into the body made the difference, yep. I had the same thing. I had this, my nutritional kick that you get from there. One of my favorite ones is I call it my my ideal bite or my perfect bite. It's a simple thing that I make and it's um, it's so simple it takes well three minutes right because I usually you know how you love to consume the boiled egg I do as well I think you got three of them sitting on your desk right over there when I usually when I boil eggs I might boil up a half a dozen I'm sorry I have them in the fridge so my perfect bite is to take a boiled egg put it in a small bowl cut me an avocado in half put that in with that boiled egg maybe split the boiled egg in half then I'll take two strips of bacon All right, so listen, I'm getting fat on fat on fat with a little bit of protein, right? And then I'll take my calamala olives, the reddish-colored ones, you know. I put about a half a dozen of those in the bowl. Then I take some feta cheese, and I break that up, and I put that in the bowl, and then I just smother it in olive oil, salt and pepper. And, dude, that is the bite. That sounds so good. And you know what? It took every bit of just a minute or two, and it's a total meal. And am I hungry for the next two or three hours? No, because I got all that fat in there and the energy associated with it because it didn't bog me down because I didn't throw a carbohydrate in there, right? So that is like my, uh, that's my perfect food, my super bite. Had about zero impact on your blood sugar too. I bet it was completely stable. Bingo. Yep, bingo. And of course, you know, who doesn't love bacon? Come on. 
there's something wrong with you there. Yes. There's this guy on Instagram called, his name is Jason.Whitrock. Have you ever seen those continuous glucose monitors that you wear on the back of your arm? Yeah, yeah. And it connects to an app and it tracks your blood sugar all throughout the day. So this guy, he just eats something by itself. And then two hours later, he looks at his glucose monitor and he tells you exactly what happened. So he's tested almond milk. He's tested Pop-Tarts. He tests whole milk. He tests Skinny Pop popcorn, Chick-fil-A, watermelon, all these different things. And then he tells you exactly what impact this has on his blood sugar. So he can tell you if it's a good food to eat or not. So obviously things like avocado have zero impact on the blood sugar. Things like Gatorade are going to run it way up there and of course, everybody thinks Gatorade is a health drink. Meanwhile, it's spiking your blood sugar to sure. the moon. Yeah. It's basically a soft drink, a soda masked as a health cocktail. So it's, it's an arsonist disguised as a firefighter. Nice to play. Yeah. Think about all the, uh, the little league teams and the peewee football teams telling the kids, you know, oh, you got to drink some Gatorade. It'll prevent your cramping. Meanwhile, they're just basically telling them to, to drink straight sugar. No, the average person is getting up and using that as, uh, as their water in the middle of the night, which is also what we were talking about earlier with the alcohol dropping. And when I said, they'll get you a, pro- a, a protein bar or a boiled egg, well, why not get up and get a chug of orange juice? Well, because you're going to go right through the same thing. You're going to balance your blood sugar for a little bit. You're actually going to spike it. You may get back to sleep, but you're going to wake up again in another hour or so with the same problem. So the key there is to keep that glucose level on an even keel, which is why I say do the protein. That way you can get back to sleep and probably make it through it till the morning time, which is a good point. In the past, that's what I used to do. I'd get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and chug me some Gatorade, right? With that, I'd get the bloating associated with it as well. And uh, the effect was just not as consistent as it was with the protein. That's why I do the protein. It's going to balance the blood sugar for you. You won't be hungry. You can go back to sleep and stay asleep. Something I've always wondered about is, you know how everyone says one alcohol makes them this, like tequila makes me feel this or whiskey makes me angry or vodka makes me this i've always wondered if if that's actually true or if people just feel that way because if alcohol is alcohol does the does the packaging actually have that effect do you think or is that just in their head you know it's funny you ask that because we all sometimes use that excuse you know um it makes me easier to hang around people. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I say wh- wh- whiskey makes me frisky. That's right. <laughs> I, I mean, me this comedian I heard one time. He was, uh, you know, he, he says um, he's talking about how well, he was at a bar or something one night, and somebody mentioned to him, "Oh, you know, I just, I don't like the taste of alcohol. I don't like alcohol. I just don't. I just, I don't have a taste for it." And he, he said, "You know." He said, you think I like tequila? Ugh. Whiskey? You think I like whiskey? That stuff's horrible. But it keeps me from killing somebody. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <it's, laughs> we have our excuses. We'll find our way to get a hold of our vice sometimes. It's something that we as a culture have been consuming for so long, though. You know, like last year, me and uh, my buddy Harrison that you know and, and Katie and um, another friend of ours went on a trip to Belize. And we went on this tour of a cave. Uh, called ATM and it was an old it was a Mayan cave the leaders of the tribe would go into this cave and they would perform rituals and they would do human sacrifices sure, and but they found all these vases in there in these big containers and they were what they would hold alcohol in so they would go in the cave get drunk make shadow figures on the wall 
try to get the the water gods to send them more rain, and they would kill a kill a couple of kids in there. So it was yeah. just you know a, a regular night, right? Yeah, yeah. it's not like a night in college there, with the exception of the kids, of course. Thank goodness we have, <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> but of course, the figures on the wall. Yeah, I can remember that a time or two. Think about it. I mean, beer was actually it was designed as a food, right? I think the monks made it back in Ireland or the yeah, some smart guys. But I mean, that's what they they consumed that as food. That was a carbohydrate. That was their liquid bread. So it's got its medicinal purposes. I know that we can find a way to to work that in there somehow. You know, sure. yeah. Um, that's one thing I tell about, uh, you know, let's talk about the beer gut, right? Is it really a beer gut? I tell and to tell my patients, well, you know, is it is that beer or is that bread? When it comes to the carbohydrate, you got to think about this now. You either drink it or you eat it, but you really can't do both. And, yeah, well, um, think about how much yeast beer contains. You know, of course, it's going to bloat your gut. Yeah. yeah. And what, you know, how that can just feed chronic candida, other issues that you have. But I know a lot of people who drink quite a bit of beer and don't have that gut. So to say that that is a beer belly, now let's, let's call that a carbohydrate belly because, again, here you can have non beer drinkers can match a beer belly just about any day. So Sure, and, and that just goes back to how everybody's body's different. You know, everyone's physiology is a little bit different. Everyone can metabolize alcohol Simulate differently. Different. Sure. And yeah. even things like caffeine, some people are slow caffeine metabolizers like myself. Some people are fast caffeine metabolizers like my mom. She can drink a coffee at 5 p.m. and go to sleep at 9, have no problem. But if I drink coffee past about 10 a.m., yeah, I'll be up all night. Me too. I'm the same way. But I like mine in the morning. But, uh, yeah, and that's this, that's the way I've been since the beginning of time. I don't care if it's decaf. It, I, I just That doesn't fly either. They say the cure for a hangover is a cup of black coffee, but let's unpack that one. Think about what coffee does. It dehydrates you. So if... Part of what you're feeling the morning after a big night of drinking is caused by dehydration and detox. Is drinking another liquid that's going to, to dehydrate you even more really going to fix the problem? Yeah, and same thing with the shower. What's that going to do? Well, it's going to make you a wet drunk. That's about it. So, you know. A wet <laughs> drunk is better than a dry drunk. We can all agree on that. <laughs> But if you're going to be a wet drunk, let it be because you were in the shower, okay? Um, an old roommate of mine will know what I mean by that one. Um. Yeah, no, you know, well, me too. Uh, I have this buddy in college, and he, when he would drink, he would sweat so bad. We'd be at a party, and his hair would just be drenched, buddy. He was just, he might be like, did you just take a shower? And he's like, no, nah, man, he's had a beer. <laughs> That's an allergic reaction, pal. <laughs> you might want to lay off on that one. You'd be like, hey, do you have an extra shirt I can put on, man? I've soaked uh, through this one already. I'm like, yeah. man, it's 9 o'clock, buddy. we got a long way to go. I had a roommate one in college that this this guy and this was the only time he'd wet the bed that would be the only time and you know we usually knew when it was saturday morning because you know the mattress would be outside <laughs> it was like okay well, we know what day it is now <laughs> so, but god bless him uh, you know uh, thank god for the pens but uh, <laughs> i will not shout out a name uh, i'm sure they appreciate that but uh, we had a party at an apartment I lived at one time in college. I, I believe I was a freshman because I still had friends in high school, and, and they came, one of them came to stay with me. So we had a bunch of people over. Everyone was was, was drinking and uh, ended up passing out, and he was just going to crash on my couch. So I go to bed and wake up the next morning, and he had already cleared out. And, man, my, my apartment just reeked. It just smelled like ugh, awful. 
And I couldn't find this worthless smell anywhere. So all morning I'm looking around like, what is that? Is it old food? Like, what am I smelling? Eventually I found out that in the night he had woken up, pulled the couch out away from the wall, thrown up behind it and pushed the couch back to the wall. Whoa. Oh, thinking no one was ever going to know it was oh, him. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, buddy, I know it was you. I still love you, but I know it was you. I hope you're doing great. <laughs> oh, Lord. Hey, man, I got one that right along that same line. Okay, it was um, college again. Um, they used to call them Mexican nightmares. Tell me if you remember this. Okay. Cuervo tequila with a Jägermeister shot mixed. Mm, 100%. Oh. So anyway... We're having a party. It's not a large one. Ten people or so at the apartment. Suddenly, said partygoer has disappeared. And uh, we're looking for Danny. So, an hour or so later, we find him. He is in my closet, passed out. Okay. So, we revive him. And I guess a couple of weeks later or so, I remember um, I was putting on a pair of boots that were in my closet, right? And I slipped the foot in, and it was like, whoa, no, not good, not good. Well, Danny had gotten sick of my clothes. <laughs> and he found him, I guess, what he thought was a bucket, and that was my boot. And, uh, yeah, so shout out, Danny boy. Yes, yes, uh, that was, gosh, that's 20 years ago, brother. I won't forget you. Oh, man, but I, I have several alcohols that I can just smell or even think about and get that visceral reaction in my gut. One of them being Jägermeister, the other one being Rumplemints, that mint mm, one, yeah, and the other one yeah, Fireball. Yeah, Those mm. three, if I smell them, I'll feel like I need to throw up. I'm afraid so. I'd probably get acid reflux if I smelled a Fireball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, woo, like again, like again, you know, yeah, those days. So, wow. I think that's my body being intelligent and telling me like, look, buddy, you know, you're not in college anymore. You got you got to throw in the towel. So I'm gonna let you smell this, and you're gonna feel sick, and that's that's how we're gonna go. Oh, yeah. It's just uh, I guess um, we've all got our timeline. So yeah, but not an easy thing. Not an easy thing to put up on the shelf, brother. I will promise you that. And um, yeah, and it's uh, it takes a lot. It um, you know you gotta have a heck of um, some self discipline. Put that on the shelf. Hundred percent, it is. I mean, it's uh, you know, there's a reason why it's a very addictive substance, and it's a reason why it's a it's a major major issue in our society. You know? Do you think it's more or less addictive than cigarettes? Well, I'm not a cigarette smoker. I know they say nicotine is really tough. Nicotine does the same thing. I think the scale level is about the same. I think it rises dopamine, let's say, like 100 points, and alcohol raises is about the same. Some things a little bit less, but uh, they've actually tested that. So I would say it'd have to be probably just about as bad as alcohol. Some people say it's worse. Some people say, truthfully, that nicotine is worse than something like an opioid, like even heroin. And, of course, we know the opioid problem in this country is just it's through the roof. It's just absolutely probably the worst thing going on right now. And it's real, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, but to be honest with you, Chase, I don't think anything's worse than sugar. You know, I've seen a lot of people kick the bucket on alcohol, which is a sugar. Yes, it is. I've seen them kick uh, nicotine on down the road. But look, in today's world, man, you know, with, between type 2 diabetes and obesity and Alzheimer's and all these other sugar-related 
uh, protocols. I've seen a lot of people can come off a lot of that stuff but can't get rid of the carbohydrate gut. So. Think about what the big things are that do spike dopamine. You know, you got things like social media, porn, yep. drugs, alcohol, gambling, cigarettes, and sugar. And of those, I would say that sugar, at least personally, sugar is, is the biggest one for me. And it's in everything. Is as you know, you go to the grocery store, even something that tastes salty, if it's processed food, it's got sugar in it. Go look at a Ritz cracker. It's a cracker, it's not a cookie, but it's gonna be loaded with sugar. Sugar's found in everything, and that's because it's so addictive, you know. That's one way that they can sell so much of this of these Franken foods, you know, these processed foods that you find in boxes with long ingredients lists at the grocery store, they're all going to have high amounts of sugar, whether it be high fructose corn syrup or other forms of sugar that they can slide in there under the radar. That's why they say to stay around the perimeter of the grocery store. You know, you got the, the sections with the vegetables, the meats, foods that are, that are real, uh, foods that don't have ingredients lists, foods that either walked on the earth or grew on the earth, and those are not found in a box. Well, let's look at another thing that is kind of like swept under the rug. We can count, if you will, the deaths associated with cirrhosis of the liver from alcohol. We know that cigarettes now are a direct cause of early death, cancers associated with the lungs, right? So you look at these, and you can, you can add those up, if you would, and even overdoses associated with certain drugs. But if you added all of those up and a, a yearly count of the deaths from those, they would not equal the deaths associated with sugar in one way or the other, whether it was cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. These are direct correlations of a sugar-handling problem which was their demise. So that encompasses all the other addictions together. I just tell you how powerful that is. But you know, it's an interesting thing. A psychiatrist uh, read uh, Gaber Mate, uh, a book that he had uh, out a couple of years ago, talked about the, those dopamine um, addictions. And a lot of those things that you just mentioned, that's to say, for example, they would up your dopamine, alcohol being the same thing, and tobacco, a level of about 100. Very interesting. Crack cocaine elevates dopamine like into the 1500s. Okay. So do you see these addicts, for example, they are hooked, brother. So if you just imagine that buzz that you might get off of alcohol or even an opioid, for example, take that and multiply that times 10 with crack or meth. That's why these people, they don't even shower. I mean, God bless them but they don't. They don't even have any interest in uh, a sexual um, contact of any type because that brings them one-tenth of the pleasure that they get from the hit off that pipe. The sad truth. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a terror. And then that's like that big mouse study, you know, the one where they, they had two, two mice in a cage and they offered one of them, or they offered them cocaine or they offered them food, mm -hmm. and they but they both picked cocaine yep. hands down. Yep, yep. Just that, that's it. And I'm glad you mentioned that about type two diabetes because yeah, I think it is. It's one of the most prevalent causes of death in America, and it's growing fast, especially juvenile onset diabetes. But one of the common myths that I hear about type two diabetes is that it runs in their family or that it's genetic. What I tell patients that I work with with type two diabetes is that. Diabetes runs in your family because no one runs in your family. A lot of times they they live a sedentary lifestyle, and and I tell them that it's actually diets that run in a family most of the time. 
people eat the same way their parents ate. That is what causes type 2 diabetes. It's not a genetic component. It might be how you're raised, but it's not your actual genes. That goes back to epigenetics. Epigenetics says that your genes are the gun, but your lifestyle is what pulls the trigger. You can turn genes on and off depending on your lifestyle, whether that's what you eat, whether it's if you're doing cold plunges or working out in the gym or going to the sauna, you can turn genes on and off and you're not sealed to a certain fate just because your parents might have had something like type 2 diabetes. It's expressing that gene. You don't, we, we have the gene, we don't have to express it. And Gabor Mate in the, I think it was the same book, explains sort of that same situation when you look at epigenetics now. In our country, in a lot of Western countries, hey, it's a way out that we don't have to hold our own self responsible. Oh, well, I'm genetically predisposed to that, so therefore I don't really have control over my own self. And that's the way society can be. Hey, find me an out, and I'll take it. Don't hold me responsible for my own health. That's sad, because if they can throw it over on science and make it a scientific issue, then um, due to lack of self-discipline, a lot of people do it every time. 100%. Well, I'll tell you, Joey, you mentioned opioids and that got me thinking that I would have to say that that is what keeps me going as far as this type of work that we do is because I think about our patients and I think about people that we work with and I think about what is the alternative to complementary and holistic health care. It's the medical system that oftentimes will just try to mask pain with a pill. And I think about opioids and and I know people everyone knows people who have had negative effects or they've become addicted to them and of course there's a place for them my best friend's an anesthesiologist and he works with patients who are so far beyond what we do who have had multiple surgeries and who that's pretty much their only option and I think about our patients and that's why I like to do this is because if we can prevent them from having to turn to opioids or prevent them from having to have surgery then that keeps me going that's a that's a major addiction, and some people I've you know I've heard stories about a kid playing football gets a sprain in the knee, goes to the doctor and they put him on opioids. And his first pill, he said, "I was addicted from then on." He said, "I'm not coming off of this. I love that feeling." The interesting thing about the opioid, it works along the same way. It's actually not. It's not like an anti-inflammatory. It uh, isn't really even a pain pill. It releases the chemical in the body, which makes you basically say, eh, "Everything's cool." Everything's all right until it wears off, right? It's sort of like the same thing with the kid. Hey, my opioid receptor said, go on out and play. You're fine. As adults, it works sort of along the same line. So it's not really fixing anything. So therefore, it's kind of taking your mind off of the symptom. So once that wears off, and each time, the way I understand it, it wears off a little quicker, and then they need a little bit more to get that same feeling. And then here it comes. Here comes a snowball. So sometimes somebody who maybe never had a desire to be addicted, something like that comes along. It's a chemical reaction in the body. Boom, some people are hooked. And like we were talking about earlier, the kid who said 17, first time he took one, doctor wrote him a script of 30, 30 for a sprain, knee, practice. He took it, said, that's it. I'm hooked. Boom. Yeah, I know we keep talking about it, but we need to get Harrison on to talk about what he does with pain management. And because... 
like I said, you know, if this doesn't work for a lot of people, that could be the next step. So we need to get him on and, and highlight some of what he does because what he does is super important. You know, it's without it, a lot of the people that he works with would be absolutely miserable. I mean, they've had rods in their back and they've got they've got issues that are just beyond what you and I prefer to work with. But, uh, you know, he also has that ketamine clinic where he does ketamine infusions and that's more for psychological issues like anxiety and depression. And um, his, I see his business partner in the gym every morning, um, John, and they tell me they have really amazing results with that, with ketamine because they can, they can get a ketamine infusion and then the patient can undergo a therapy session while they're under the effects of that. And it can basically allow them to open up and feel more comfortable talking about and releasing past traumas that maybe they had kept suppressed for so long. And, and a lot of them have said that after one or two infusions, they feel completely back to normal and the depression's gone. So that'd be, that'd be cool to talk about. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this one up, Dr. J. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll be back in a week. That was a nice trip back in time. Yeah. Have a great week. <laughs>